Dear friends, let's look at Luke chapter 9. We'll be walking through verses 28 through 36 this morning, a very significant passage within this gospel of Luke. Let's look over this passage, verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid, and they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and told no one in those days of anything of what they had seen. Three very important themes that we see flowing through this passage bring together, culminate these three themes that exist within the scriptures as a whole. We have the, the glory of God, the law and the prophets, and the exodus, the glory of God that is being displayed here and being displayed in a very particular way, ways in which it had been seen at other times, at the tabernacle or at the temple, or as Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai with the law, God displaying his glory here, the, that which is eternal displaying itself into that which is temporal. See the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets being summarized here with Moses and Elijah here standing with Jesus. The, the law and the prophets which have pointed to Christ. The, the law of God which is declaring how it is that we should live in his moral law and in particular positive ways we see that given in the judicial law, and the ceremonial law within the Old Testament, all of which is summarized in Moses many times. It's called the law of Moses. And the law is very, very important. The law is something that is significant. The law is how it is that we should best live. We see that in the moral law. God gives these laws to us in the moral law. Because this is the best way in which we should live. It's the way we are, were designed to live. It is consistent with our humanity. To live in a way that is contrary to the law of God is dehumanizing. It is destructive. You can see that downward spiral as Paul writes of it in Romans chapter 1. It is destructive of the individual. It is destructive in a family. It is destructive in a culture. When we see the law of God, it is a reminder of the need for Christ. It is a mirror for us to look into. And you look at the law of God and you see the ways in which you fall short. And man and all of his false religions will seek to take the law of God or a, a version of the law of God and they will, they will lower it. They will make it less than it is that man can feel just in his actions, that man can feel just in comparing himself to other people. But when you look at the law rightly, you understand that even in the Old Testament, the moral law of God required obedience in word and thought and deed. Even the motives were judged by God. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God, the prophets say, looks at the heart. 
Joel said, Joel told him, rend your hearts, not your garments. It's what's inside of you that needs to change. And looking at the law and the ways in which we fall short is a reminder of our need, the Savior. And the prophets here summarized in Elijah, that great prophet of old that stood so bravely as so many were, 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 were inconsistent in applying the law of God, were inconsistent in following the law of God, the prophets calling them back to obedience, to covenant faithfulness. The law and the prophets, all of these point to Christ Jesus. He's not contrary to it. It's not as though, well, if things didn't work out with the people in Israel, so now God has a, another plan here, and now he's going to get back to the people of Israel later on down the way. It's not how it is. God has but one plan, and that is through our Lord Jesus Christ and the Exodus. The, the Exodus here emphasized, Exodus here emphasized in Christ's departure, Luke very intentionally uses the word exodus here to refer to Christ's death. And you see, you see here Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus about his exodus, this most important part of his ministry. It's an important part that, it, that, that made his disciples fearful. But the law and the prophets spoke of these things in times past, he would be a suffering servant. He is one who would lay down his life for his people. His people would be granted righteousness on account of him. He came not that they would rule the world. He came not that they would be a people that would overtake the, the Romans, filling all those political positions and seats but rather that God would rule within their hearts. This exodus that he takes forward was a part of his plan. It was intentional. This harkens us back to the exodus of old, this, this most significant time in the life of the people of Israel where Moses had led the people out from a slavery to Pharaoh led them out from a slavery under Egyptian rule. There's a greater exodus that is here. The Lord Jesus Christ who is saving his people. The Lord Jesus Christ who is the greater Moses, the one that Moses even spoke of. He is the one who is leading his people out of their slavery to sin. That they can freely walk and worship and serve God, removing them out of this tyranny of darkness, this tyranny of, of sin, all the destructiveness of sin. The Lord Jesus Christ grants his people life that they can be free from sin, and he makes them, dear friends, worthy to worship him just as the Israelites, just as the Israelites were freed out of a slavery under Pharaoh, that they could go out into the wilderness and freely worship the Lord. So the people of God in Jesus Christ are freed from a slavery to sin, that they can turn from it and walk in obedience and rightly worship God. For that worship that's mixed with idolatry is not pleasing to the Lord. That worship that is mixed with sinful practice is offensive to the Lord. It was necessary that the people would leave Egypt to go out and, and worship God rightly. And we see the fact that they don't do that when they get out there. That the importance of rightly worshiping God is brought to fruition in Christ Jesus. Who changes his people, not just outwardly, but from the inside. That they would offer true worship to God from a heart that has been changed. Let's walk through each of these themes that we see in this passage, the glory of God, the law, and the prophets, and the exodus. Let's see the glory of God here in these first few verses, verses 28 and 29 in Luke chapter 9. It says, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James, and went up to the mountain to pray. And he was praying, as he was praying, 
The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. You know, the moon is something that has fascinated me uh, even even from childhood. I've been fascinated by um, the stars in the sky, the planets in the sky, and and the moon most especially because the moon is so large. And I had a telescope as a child where I was able to look at the moon. The moon's very easy to look at with an inexpensive telescope. And the moon is something that is really, really fantastic, especially if you've ever been out into the country. You've been in an area that doesn't have so much of this, what we would call light pollution. This, this light pollution that we have within the city that is, is necessary. I'm not asking that everyone turn their lights off in their city. We have our lights on in our house in the evening as the sun goes down. But there's a consequence to that in having so much light in the area around you means that you can't see the brightness of the objects in the sky. And if you've ever been out into the country, you've ever been out where you don't have this light pollution, it is really incredible what you will see in the sky. And I'd say the moon can be really incredible at these times as well. There have been times where I've been out in the country, out in Aaron, Tennessee, where my great-grandparents had a farmhouse and I remember being out there back before they had put lights up on that highway that went right in front of their house. And you could walk out there on some nights and the moon would be so bright that you could take a book out and you could read the book under the light of the moon. And it would be hard to do that under most circumstances, but the, the brightness would shine so brightly here in the hills of Tennessee that you could see even the words on the page of a book in front of you. And that's incredible being that the moon is over 200,000 miles away and yet you have the, the brightness there shining to the earth. You could read even a book under that brightness. But as you know, you've been educated, you've gone to school. Some of the youngest children could, could tell me here that, that, that the brightness that the moon displays doesn't actually come from the moon. The brightness that the moon displays is rather a a reflection of the brightness that is shining on it from the sun. The sun's shining on the moon, and that brightness is being displayed there upon the earth. And that's even more incredible because you have the sun that's 93 million miles away, and it's shining onto this other great object 200,000 miles away, and that's shining on to us. I want to use that as... As an illustration, there, there is a story in the Old Testament that very much is pointing to this transfiguration, this story that we have here of Jesus at this time where this glory is being displayed. And that story is the story where Moses is on Mount Sinai and he's coming down with the, the law. He's coming down and his face begins to to shine. His face begins to display this great brightness. Let's look at, let's look at Exodus 34, and we're going to begin in verse 29. Exodus 34, beginning in 29. It says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, they put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put a veil over his face again until until he went in to speak with him. This is an incredible story, and it's one most certainly that anyone reading the Gospel of Luke, and even Luke himself in writing this, would think of, would be hearkening back to this time when Moses was speaking directly with God. He was face 
to face with God. And when he walked down from the mountain, there was a great light that was being displayed from his face. It was, it was brightly shining. And it was so great. It was so incredible that the people desired for his face to be covered because it was too much. They would listen to him as he spoke, but then they would cover his face because it was overwhelming. And the greatness of the light that was being displayed from the face of Moses, as great as it was, was, was just, just a reflection. We, we could even say it was an afterthought of the glory that is truly there, the, the brightness and the greatness of that which is there within the very being of God, the very, very substance of, of deity. Moses was a great man. He was, he was an incredible man. He's considered by the Jews to be their greatest leader. He's the one that they look to with all of his frailties, with all of his faults. It is Christianity. It is true religion that records the faults of the heroes, records the faults of the great men and women that God uses in kingdom work. But Moses, with all of his faults and, and frailties, being a great man that led the people out of a slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt was, was but a man. And that which, was, that which was displayed on his face at that time was but a reflection of the glory that was being displayed from God. Like the moon displays the, the light of the sun, were the sun to go out, there would be no reflection from the moon here on the earth. So it is with Moses. With the glory not shining upon Moses at that time, were he not face to face with Moses, that, that, is not be, that would no longer be displayed in, in Moses. He was not displaying his own glory, but rather displaying the glory of God and being displayed because of his proximity to the Lord at that time. And yes, God is everywhere. God is omnipresent, but he was displaying himself in a very particular way at the place on top of Mount Sinai as he was speaking with Moses. And we have the Lord displaying himself in a very particular way here on this mountain through Jesus. But what's happening here with Jesus, understand this, is similar to what happened with Moses, but it's also completely different. It's similar to what happened with Moses, but it's also completely Different, And you have this display of the glory of God that is being displayed through Jesus Christ. But it is not a reflection of God's glory. It is, not, it is not Jesus who had gone up the mountain like Moses and was reflecting the glory of God. But rather we have at this moment, at this time, the very deity of Jesus being displayed here at this time as he's standing on the mountain, fully supported by the law and the prophets going forward into this great exodus that he will be walking into as we continue going forward in the following chapters. All of this was a part of the plan. And Jesus is one who is here who's not reflecting the glory of God. He is God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. John emphasizes this at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. He has always been God. God he's not slightly less God than the Father. He is fully God. He is all that it is to be God. If you are 98% God, then you are not God at all. God cannot change. You cannot diminish godliness. Jesus here is displaying the glory of God, not reflecting, but rather displaying. We sing of this each and every Lord's Day. We sing of the, the glory of God each and every Lord's Day in a very particular way. We sing Gloria Patra each and every Lord's Day. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, as now ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. The glory displayed 
from God is displayed through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's what's happening here. See this first and foremost. Recognize the, the deity of Jesus that is being displayed here in what is called this, this transfiguration. John of Damascus says this. He says, he is transfigured not as receiving what he is not, but manifesting to his disciples what he was. He's transfigured not as receiving what he was not, but manifesting to his disciples what he was. He is displaying who he is and not displaying himself fully or they would have been consumed. Matthew, in the same narrative in his gospel, uses the Greek word, which is for, for metamorphosis. And I want you to think of this idea of, of a, a metamorphosis. Think of a creature that goes through metamorphosis. So we, metamor there are many that we could think of. The easiest to think of would be, be a butterfly. You have a caterpillar that's crawling around, and it, it looks one way as it's going around, and it's eating leaves, and it's growing, and then it goes through its cycle goes into the cocoon, and then it comes out as a butterfly. It no longer eats leaves. It then goes around, and it's, it's, it's eating nectar out of flowers at that point. It's, it looks like a totally different creature at that point. I mean, if you didn't know better, you would think that was a totally different creature. You would say, well, you could look at the DNA, though, and it, the DNA doesn't change. It's exactly the same. All of the substance of the butterfly and the caterpillar are there within the caterpillar and they're there within the butterfly at all stages of that creature's life. That is what the creature is. You're just seeing it displayed differently. But this, this metamorphosis, you're not to think of Jesus as, as changing, but, but think of this, this change that is there that you're seeing is what is being displayed in this greatness, this transfiguration that is happening. It's not a, a changing of Jesus but it is a change of what they are seeing, what is being communicated to them. In this metamorphosis, you can see this idea of he's just communicating who he is at this point. He is just displaying what John speaks of in the beginning of his gospel in John chapter 1 and verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is a glory that they had seen, they had beheld, they had witnessed. This is significant. There are three witnesses here that are witnessing this transfiguration. They're witnessing what is happening here, and they will not give a testimony to this until after the resurrection of Jesus. This will not be something that is discussed prior to that time, because, well, perhaps who would believe them if they began to say it? But this glory of Jesus was being displayed here. And we see the fulfillment or a beginning of the fulfillment, depending on how it's approached, of the passage we had just previously in verse 27 of Luke 9. Remember, Jesus said to them, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God and that kingdom being displayed here as Christ is manifesting as he is displaying his glory here in this transfiguration right before going forward to this time of his exodus. This exodus walking forward where he will be the one that will lay down his life on behalf of his people, the glory of God. So greatly displayed through Christ within this text, Jesus being one who is fully God and fully man. It was necessary that we have a Savior that is fully God and fully man, one that can represent us, one that could be tempted in all ways, but not succumb to that temptation, and one who's existed from eternity, one who could take upon himself the fullness of the wrath of God and walk away unscathed, that we could freely live, serve, and worship him, the glory of God. Secondly, we see the law and the prophets. This is very, very important. The law and the prophets. Every cult leader in the world 
comes forward and says, everything that came before me is wrong. And if they don't say that, they go and reinterpret everything that came before them in such a way that the people that had actually confessed that through the years would not be confessing what they are declaring about them. It's the reality. Joseph Smith comes forward and says, everything before me was wrong. All of these denominations and churches that are here are wrong. All of the, the church has been um, without apostles for thousands of years, he declares. He says, everything's wrong. I'm the one. Listen to me. We could go down the list of various cults, various religious leaders that do the same thing. Not so with Jesus. Jesus has the testimony that is here. The testimony from God the Father saying, this is my son. This is my, the, the one I have chosen. Listen to him. And we see the testimony here of the law and the prophets. Those who came before him. The word of God prior to Jesus coming spoke of Jesus. The prophets who were holy men inspired by the Holy Spirit who went forward and, and spoke truth. These that would even serve as lawyers, covenantal prosecutors at times, spoke of Jesus. Look at Luke 9, verses 30 and through 32. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men stood with him. I want to hearken you back to something. I want you to remember where Moses was as the people of God were about to cross the Jordan River, and they were about to go into the promised land. And we see this in Numbers chapter 20, verses 10 through 13. It says, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through him he showed himself holy. And Moses, because of his sin, is not allowed to enter the promised land. Moses loses his temper. He's been walking with his people for, for 40 years. Um, he is about 120 years old at this point. 40 years he was in um, Egypt, and then he left. 40 years he was a shepherd and now 40 years he has been leading the people of Israel around the wilderness. And there's great patience that the Lord worked within Moses during those years as he was a shepherd, no doubt. But we see his sin coming forward at this time. And Moses was not permitted to enter the promised land with the people at this time. But we see him here in this text. Here he is at the transfiguration. Here he is in the promised land. And what is he doing? He's inaugurating the Lord Jesus. He is recognizing the Lord Jesus. He is testifying, testifying as the law of God about the Lord Jesus. He enters the promised land. He enters the promised land because of his faith in the Messiah. And that's the only way that any of you enter the true promised land, the, 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 the new Jerusalem. Why way, any of you enter glory and spend eternity with the Lord? It's not on account of your own righteousness. It's not on account of your own striving. It's not on account of your own work. No, it's only on account of Christ Jesus. It is by grace and through faith. Moses was insufficient in of himself, but in Christ, in Christ, there was sufficiency. Christ was sufficient. And if you ask me, I think he got a better deal here. He died outside the promised land, but here he is. Here he is on this mountain at this great and incredible time here with Elijah. 
And here he is speaking with Christ Jesus. Apart from the grace of God, even Moses would not have entered the eternal promised land. Moses merely pointed people to the greater Moses. Remember, remember Moses spoke of Jesus. Moses told them that there would be one like him that would come. He told them there would be another prophet like him that would come forward. Jesus is not merely a prophet, but Jesus is most definitely a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, there in verse 15, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And we see Moses calling them to listen to the Messiah when he comes forth. There's many that will not listen to him. But this is the same encouragement that the Father is giving. This is one I have chosen. Listen to him. Understand the significance, the greatness of, of Moses and Elijah being here. This is the totality of the law and the prophets. This is significant. This is what Moses and Elijah are representing. And we see numerous times in the scriptures, in, in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, where the law of God is called the, the law of Moses. We see the totality of the Old Testament being, being referred to as the law and the prophets. Consider, we'll get there in just a few chapters, but the rich man and Lazarus. And we see this in Luke 16 and verse 29. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. It's the encouragement. He says, hey, what my brothers, they're, they're not going to listen. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. Why? Because Moses and the prophets spoke of the Messiah. And if you're one that says, well, I just hold to the Old Testament. I just hold to the Old Covenant. I just believe in Moses and the prophets, but you don't believe in Jesus. This means you don't really believe in Moses and the prophets because Moses and the prophets, the law of God and the prophetic words that came from the prophets that pointed people back to the law, they pointed to Jesus They pointed for the necessity of the Messiah. Think of even the ceremonial law. Think of it, the the ceremonies that took place each and every day. There There was an altar where they were burning sacrifices day in and day out, and they were regularly burning their sacrifices. You had all of the different aspects there in the ceremonies, and you had the sounds, you had the smells, you had the noises, you had all different aspects there. And you walk even into this tabernacle or into the temple from that eastern gate and you see before you this great flame burning and burning and burning. We have all of this, uh, this, this symbolism throughout the temple and the tabernacle that is like that of Eden. All of these, these fruit trees, these pomegranates. Why is that it's pointing back to the Garden of Eden? There is a story that's being told here through the architecture of the tabernacle. And that is a reminder of the sin of man and the ways in which the sin of man has separated him from God. The consequences of sin. And you walk through that eastern door and you see that flame before you. And it is a reminder of man's sin. And you bring forward your sacrifices under the Mosaic Covenant, under the ceremonial law, and you bring them forward, and you bring your sacrifice forward, and the flame doesn't go out. It just keeps burning. It doesn't go out. And so these ceremonies were not pointing you to a way in which you could bring your sacrifices forward and be made right with God and be in a good standing because you burned an animal. No, the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats forgives no sin. These ceremonies that are given there, this which was taught and declared within the Mosaic Covenant, this which was required for the people of Israel to practice merely pointed to the need of Christ Jesus, the one who could give you peace with God. Dear friends, all of your religious strivings, all of your religious efforts are insufficient to give you peace with God. You may go to church, you may pray, you may may read your Bible, you may say so many Hail Marys, 
You may go to confession. You may do many different religious activities. You may give alms to the poor. You may do acts of service to other people. None of these will make you right with God. None of these will atone for your sin. The one to whom the law and the prophets pointed to is Christ Jesus. It was necessary that Christ would go forward and represent his people, lead his people out of a slavery to sin. It's only in Christ alone. Only this, dear friends, if you would see the greatness and the highness of your sin. And and I know, I know that it's not enjoyable to hear about how bad you are. You can go and hear many talks about how good you are and how special you are. But the word of God speaks very specifically about us. In Romans chapter 3, and Paul is pulling out of Psalms in the scriptures, And he goes so far in Romans chapter 3 to say that no one is good. Then he says, no, not one. Because as soon as he says that, you say, well, wait a second. I've got my great aunt over here, and she was always so kind to me. No, no, not even her. Not even your greatest hero in history, by God's standard, is not good. It's insufficient. That's what's declared each and every day as that Flame was burning in the tabernacle, burning each and every day. It was, it was screaming, insufficient, insufficient, insufficient. No, it's only, it's only in Christ Jesus that there is sufficiency. Only in Christ Jesus, one that is, is fully God and, and fully man, one who took upon himself the fullness of the consequences of the sin for his people, the one that fulfilled the law in every respect, that in seeing your own sufficiency, you could see Christ's sufficiency and trust in him and believe upon him and be saved and, and, and have true, true life. We see Moses and the prophets spoken of again in that same passage in verse 31 of Luke 16. He says again to Lazarus, he says to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's incredible how people will say, well, you know, maybe if God just does some kind of a miracle in front of me, if God just does some kind of miracle in front of you, you're just going to come up with some excuse as to why that is, why that happened. You say, well, I was just hallucinating. Maybe I was just dreaming. Natural man loves his sin Natural man is not going to come to the Lord because someone does magic tricks in front of them. That's not the purpose of miracles even. It's not to cause people just to go and say, okay, well, this is really special. I'll believe it. It's a sign. These are signs that the Lord gave pointing to Christ being the Messiah, the law and the prophets, the law teaching how it is that we were to live, how it is that the people of God were to live to live under covenant faithfulness with him. And we have the prophets here. Prophets being um, represented here by Elijah. And these prophets many times were what we would call covenant prosecutors. You see them coming forward and speaking to the people of Israel and pressing charges against the people of Israel. This is what the law says, and you are breaking the law. You are violating the law. Hosea, this is one example, Hosea 12, 2, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. You see the prophets many times calling in witnesses. Micah 1 and verse 2, hear you peoples, all of you pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple other times you will see the prophets going forward to prosecute the people of Israel and they will be bringing in creation they will be calling in the stars and the earth the moon the the mountains all to all to be witnesses against these people that are breaking the law of God pressing charges against these people and we see Jesus even doing this himself 
Jesus fulfills both of these respects, kind of like Moses did in some ways. Moses did a little bit of covenant prosecution in certain parts of Deuteronomy and even did some prosecution ahead of time, basically said, this is what's going to happen. This is what you're going to do. These are going to be the consequences of the people and the generations to come when they do this. They're going to be taken out of the land. But we see Jesus bringing covenant charges against the Jews and their leaders in Matthew 23. Very similarly to the ways in which um, charges were pressed against people earlier on. As you see that in Isaiah, I could, I could unpack many of these places, but just trust me, you see that in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, it's very similar to how Jesus is pressing charges for breaking the law against the Jews. And Elijah here is representing prophets. He is one of the greatest prophets. He is one who stood for truth. Not, he's not a great prophet because he wrote more than anyone else. He's not a great prophet because he did more miracles than anyone else. We don't have the writings of Elijah. We don't have him recorded as a writer of Scripture. We don't have um, Elijah didn't do more miracles than Elisha. But he was great because he stood. He stood there when so few were standing for truth at that time. There was but 7,000 that hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. And he's one that stood firmly on the word of God stood firmly as a covenantal prosecutor against the people at this time. So you have both of these components, the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, here at the transfiguration, testifying of Jesus, pointing to Jesus, speaking, speaking even of this exodus that Jesus will perform as he will lead his people into freedom from their sin. These two are even spoken of in, in Malachi. We see that at the end of Malachi 4, 4 through 6. Um, Elijah is going to come forward. Of course, we know that was John the Baptist, but once again, this is the spirit of Elijah coming forward. This wasn't literally Elijah coming back from the dead to go and to walk around the people, but it was, it was in that same spirit that John the Baptist was coming forward, bringing charges against the people, calling the people back to repentance. And here they are having this conversation about what Jesus is going to do. Understand this, that Jesus is, is, is significant in comparison to all of the cult leaders, all of the leaders of, of false religions, and that God spoke of Jesus prior to his incarnation. Even Jesus, the one who brought all things into existence from, from absolutely nothing, he was spoken of by those that came before him. The totality of the scriptures have, have pointed to him. And so you have these witnesses of the law and of the prophets and even of the Father. Get verse 34 and, and 35 of Luke 9. It says, As he was saying these things, a cloud came down and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And this voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is the one chosen by God. This is the one that God called to be the representative of his people. This is the same wording that we have in multiple places in the Old Testament. So is Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Again, Isaiah 44 in verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. Again, Isaiah 49 in verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes Shall, shall they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is very significant, very significant messianic language here. And we have Peter at this time saying, okay, well, well here we go. Let's build some little booths. Let's build some little tabernacles. Because at this time, Israel was celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, and that was a reminder 
of a time when they were in the wilderness and they would go and they would, they would basically go camping. There was a lot to it. But they would, they would go and they would camp out in these, these little, they called, you call them booths, but it's basically a tent. And there would be a hole in the top of the tent or you could make a, an opening in the top of the tent. And there would be giant bowls of oil that were being burned during this time. So there would be bright lights all around them continually burning. And that was a big part of this festival was these lights that would be burning at night. And this was a reminder of God's faithfulness and care for the people as they were in the wilderness. And as you remember, they were in the wilderness, and there's darkness in the wilderness, but they always had light at night. The Lord displayed his glory there at night in a flame, and they had light. And that's the reminder of what they have there in the tabernacles as that oil is burning. And Peter sees this and says, well, this is it. We've arrived. Let's let, let, let's, let's worship God. Let's, let's, let's participate here in the Feast of Tabernacles right here. Let's build three booths, one for Elijah, one for Moses, one for Jesus. Peter is incredible. He was a man of, of such zeal. He was a man who was very quick to speak, but he's a man that needed to listen, needed to grow, needed to mature. His, his knowledge needed to catch up with his zeal and his desire to go and to change things and to flip the world upside down. And Luke even makes this editorial comment here. He knew not what he was saying. Peter doesn't even realize what he's saying. This is not going to be the be all and end all. He's going to have to go forward. Jesus is going to have to go forward to the cross. Jesus has been speaking of this. And Peter's even one that contradicted Jesus. Where Peter told him, no, no, may it not be when Jesus said that he was going to be put to death. And Jesus tells Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus had to go to the cross. Jesus has been telling his disciples that he would go to the cross and he would be put to death. This is not what they wanted. This is not what they were imagining for this messianic reign. They were imagining a Messiah was going to come forward and was going to remove the reign of the Romans over them and they would be free and be able to rule themselves however they so desired, but they didn't see their real problem. They didn't see their, their greater problem. Their greatest problem was not the tyranny of the Romans. Their greatest problem was the tyranny of sin. The fact they had joined an alliance with Satan in their forefather, Adam. And God had made a way whereby they could be saved. In all of the testimony of the prophets and of the law was pointing to this great act of Jesus in this great exodus. That's what we see next. We see this exodus. Luke very intentionally uses this word here for his departure. And this is the word exodus in Greek. We see this in verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was now about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him and the men were parting from him. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. It is during this time of this Feast of Tabernacles that, that Peter is even making this statement, but you have people that are participating in the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering God's God's providence, God's care for them in the wilderness in times past. But the true exodus will stand before them. The, the true Messiah, the one to whom even that great event of the exodus pointed. The one to whom Moses, their great leader, pointed. And they will deny him. They, they, they will, say, they will say, they say, crucify him. Crucify him. For Peter here 
He needs to recognize the cost of what is before Jesus, the requirement of, of what is necessary, that Paul would be able to write that God is both just and justifier. We, we sang of this many times over today, that through the work of Jesus Christ, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're not only justified, you're not only saved, but God is just in his dealings with you. You can find other religions where the God just lets things go. You can look to a religion like Islam. There is no atonement in Islam. Sin is not dealt with. You just hope that Allah is going to let your sin go. In various other religions, there's, there's things that you're going to do to atone for your sin in some way. There's religious actions that you're going to do. There's alms that you're going to pay. Some believe you'll, you'll go to purgatory and, and some of your sins will be burnt off. The justice of God will be dealt with in that way. If you could in any way atone for your sins through your own actions, if you could have atoned for your sins by reading the Bible, by praying, by giving alms, by sacrificing animals, if you could have atoned for your sins in any of these ways, through any of these means, Jesus would not have needed to come. The word would not have needed to dwell among us and clothe himself with flesh. There was no other means that was there. There was no other opportunity. It was only through Christ alone. He is the one who could accomplish this. It's in him we, we see this glory, the one who is fully God and fully man. John of Damascus says this, it were not good for thee, Peter, he's speaking to Peter, that Christ should abide there. For if he had remained, the promise made to thee would never receive its accomplishment. Had Christ merely remained, had they just absorbed the, that, the joy that is there in, in being around him at that time, had Christ not gone forward, which is what will come next, Christ will be alone going forward to the cross. The Lord says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And it all goes away. It all goes away for he will now begin his journey to the cross. He will now begin his journey to the cross because the Passover is going to follow the Feast of Tabernacles. And that Passover that is going to be given whereby the people can be saved from the angel of death that the Lord will send that angel of death. Let's be honest, dear friends. The end of John Three says, all who do not believe upon the Son, the wrath of God is over them. That is the reality for all people who are not in Christ. That is the reality for all people who are not trusting in Christ alone and have not repented of their sins. That's the picture that is there in that great exodus, that Passover that is there. That blood of the lamb, that lamb that was sacrificed and the blood was put over the doorpost then those in the house would not receive the consequences of the angel of death going over. The firstborn would not be sacrificed. But not so with Christ. Christ is that firstborn. Christ is that Lamb of God. Christ is the one whose body will be broken. Christ is the one whose blood will be spilt, whereby the consequences of sin can be atoned for. The wrath of God can be appeased. That's a word we sung about today as well. Propitiation. Christ is our propitiation. If you are in fact in Christ Jesus, the wrath of God has fallen upon him that it may not fall upon you, dear friends. It was necessary that he went forward. John speaks of this in 1 John one, beginning in verse one, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life, 
which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. They're, they're testifying. These are this inner circle of apostles will, will testify to who Jesus is and, and, and what he has done. And they will give testimony to this after his death and his resurrection. Oh, the, these three very important themes that we see the glory of God displayed in Christ Jesus here upon this mountain, not a reflection of the glory of God, but displaying a, a revealing of who Jesus is, a revealing of his divinity. They had seen, touched, and heard the humanity of Jesus. They are seeing the divinity of Jesus at this moment. And this moment is one to which the law and the prophets had pointed to, this Messiah that was to come, this suffering servant that was to die on behalf of his people, this one who would grant righteousness to his people. The law pointed to him, first in that he was necessary, the ceremonial law pointed to him, and that he was necessary, the ceremonial law screamed insufficient. But Jesus was sufficient. When Jesus died, the veil in the temple was tore. And that most holy place, that, that inner place, whereby even the high priest could only go in there once a year to give that, that sacrifice at that time on Yom Kippur. It was torn. It was ripped from top to bottom. Peace was made with God through Christ Jesus. He is sufficient. No longer does a flame need to burn to tell you the insufficiency of your own works. Christ Jesus is the one. It's that greater exodus who had gone forward, leading his people out of a slavery to sin, whereby they can have peace with God, leading his people out of darkness, there into light, leading his people out of idolatry, that they can even go and worship God rightly. Don't you see that, dear friends? The, the worship that you give to God in your fallen state is, is insufficient. He, he doesn't grade you on a curve. It, it is idolatrous. It's even worse if you don't worship him at all. But in worshiping him improperly is still sin. But Christ, Christ leads you out of a slavery to sin, leads you out of the bondage to sin, leads you out of idolatry, to worship and serve him even in this wilderness journey that you're in now, that you can worship him now. That is the beauty of what he has done. He has saved us. Not just that we will reside with him in glory by and by, but even now he will use our lives that we can bring glory to him. And he will do that for you, dear friend. If you will but see your sin, you will see the ways in which you've broken the law of God. You violated his, his law. You will look, look at the law as it is declared in the scriptures. As Jesus is asked, what, what is the, the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He points them to the Ten Commandments. You need to worship God rightly. Verse 4, you need to love man rightly. The last six, when you look at that, you see the ways in which you, you violate that, you break that. Don't let that turn. Don't, don't, don't feel the pain of breaking the law of God, the shame of breaking the law of God, and try to justify it or try to find some way in which there's something wrong with me. You can find all you can find all kinds of errors about me, all kinds of faults about me. I don't speak what I speak because I'm perfect. But in seeing the ways in which you break the law of God, that you fall short, it should drive you 
not to dismiss the one who is saying these things to you. It should drive you not to look to someone else who is worse than yourself. It should drive you to embrace the means that God has given whereby you can be saved, whereby you can be free, whereby you can have peace with God. And that is in Christ alone. He is the greater Passover lamb. He is the one who has been given that whoever believes upon him will be saved. Turn to Christ, believe upon him. In him you can have life, you can have life indeed.